Hello everyone, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo. My name is Eric. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Hope you had an excellent weekend and you're doing well on this fine Monday, May 1st. Ooh, it's May Day. Just a look at what is coming up this week. We've got a video review of Planet A to C, the remake of Ambient Abyssal, that'll go up on our YouTube channel. And for our Wednesday pod this week, we are going to answer some questions from the mailbag about what board gaming is like in Japan, which I think will be really interesting because you all asked some great questions. But first, we had today's review episode, and wow, do we have quite the collection of games to go over. Today, we'll be looking at Gadget Trick, a trick-taking game with special powers and player elimination, Hitani Yasashikunaru Game, which has been translated as people-friendly game on BGG, but is more like a game to make people friendly that is kind of like headbands, but with medical conditions. Roll and write Fugal, which blends a roll and write with climbing and shedding. And then we are going to travel to Gugong, a game in which we're playing as families trying to build up reputation in order to impress the emperor. And before we begin, I know we just took a week off, but we are ramping up the content to twice weekly podcasts, as well as our YouTube content. So if you're not subscribed and following, click that button so you don't miss it when we drop something. I'm really excited for what we have coming, and I think you're going to like it too. Let's kick things off today with Gadget Trick, a game in which you are ghost thieves? Okay, I don't really know about that ghost part, but sure, let's go with it. You are ghost thieves trying to steal treasure in which every trick you play is an obstacle. Okay, no, I I can't do this. Let's just call this what this is. Gadget Trick is a must-follow trick-taking game in which every player has a special power called gadgets. These might be things like, if you lead the trick, the trump is invalid. Or an extra life. Wait, an extra life? What? Well, there are also sensor cards, in which if you trigger them, you are eliminated. These might be something like, win three tricks in a row, or win cards that form a straight of six in a row. All the while, you are playing a very simple trick-taking game that is a must-follow, meaning that you have to, if possible, play the same suit as the person who leads the trick. So if they play a blue, for example, you have to play a blue card, even if it means you lose. But if you don't have a blue, you can play whatever you want. The winner of this game is either the person who wins the last trick, the last person standing, or if the person who wins the last trick is then eliminated because of it, the person who has won the most tricks in the game. I think something that is so important in games is that first impression. It's the reason companies spend so much on art or good components or a clean rulebook. It gets you excited to play the game. And even if you don't end up liking it, because of that decent first impression, you don't rank it as badly and might give it another chance. That's pretty much the opposite of our first impressions of Gadget Trick. I brought the box out and immediately Simachan and I were not pleased with what we found. This box and another we will cover today are some of the worst box quality we've seen, with the game box almost bending out of sorts just holding the thing. The cards themselves are a really cheap quality, that almost paper feeling to them, and the colors don't match. What I mean is, the blue suit cards are all blue, sure, but they aren't the same shade of blue. And this could be cool, but actually it'll only be one or two or three of the cards that don't match, which means that it was more of a print quality problem rather than an intentional thing. If you want to see what I'm talking about, go on Heavy Cardboard's playthrough of the game, which I'll leave a link to in the description below, and you'll see what I mean because I believe it's Edward who mentions it. And let's just talk about the rulebook for a second. It's fine. And honestly, James Nathan did a phenomenal job translating it into English, as the Japanese one is such a mess that three people who speak native Japanese had to consult the English rulebook. The order and wording just make no sense in this rulebook. For example, the sensor cards. Those cards that you'll choose randomly that are traps that if you trigger them, then you're eliminated. 
pretty important cards. In the first section, it says to draw two of them. Okay, easy enough. Okay, then place a third one upside down. Okay, got it. But wait, what's that third card for? Oh, it says on one of the last sections of the rule book that you turned it over after the gadget cards are drawn. Why, oh why is that not said earlier in the rule book? It's one sentence. You could have just added it in the preparation part of the rule book instead of making me have to go find it. But let's come away from that for a moment and talk about the game itself. The premise is pretty tantalizing. You might get eliminated, so watch out. And since everyone knows what the sensors are, that means you're probably going to try to get someone out in the course of the game. In fact, you definitely will, as there is almost always at least one person who gets eliminated in the course of the nine tricks you'll play. Everyone else is trying to survive long enough to win that ninth trick, so they might save a good card, but they might also try to get the leader out by eliminating them on the final trick. There's even a gadget that just says you win the final trick, so everyone will try to get that player out or else they win. And all of this kind of works, but it leaves me feeling this sense of dissonance. It's like, I can see the skeleton of a good game. The idea is cool, but the execution just isn't. The gadgets, for example, are wildly unbalanced. There are certain sensor cards that you need to get rid of at certain player counts because they just don't work. It doesn't say so in the rulebook, it's just something you figure out. And the seemingly simple game is in fact not. Even though the must-follow trick-taking mechanism is nothing new, there is just so much going on here that it becomes too much to handle for people who aren't seasoned pros in trick-taking. It's hard to recommend a game in which everyone we played didn't enjoy it. In fact, Sumachan just blatantly said after we played it enough times to get our opinions ironed out, I never want to play that again. It just seems like, in this iteration, I'm playing a prototype rather than a finished product. Like someone just threw this idea out there to see how it is received. And when I look at it that way, everything starts making sense. Okay, this is a prototype, so that's why the components are shoddy, and the cards don't even match their own suit colors. Okay, that's why the gadget cards are unbalanced. They'll refine them when the real finished product comes out. And they'll add little icons on the sensor cards of which can be included for which player counts. Or maybe they'll just even refine the player count because I didn't like this at three. It is definitely a four or five player game with five feeling like the sweet spot. Maybe they'll even relook at the rule book. But right now, I just can't recommend this one even though the idea is cool. Is it unlike any other trick-taking game? You bet. But I'm gonna say... This game is so good that you can ignore the components, rulebook, and imbalance? Oh, and also you're going to need to do paste-ups for this one? No, because like our group, there is a pretty reasonable chance that your group hates it. There's player elimination, mostly due to bullying a player. There are gadget cards that completely sway the game, no matter how good you are at trick-taking. And in a time in which great new trick-takers are coming out all the time, I can't recommend one that has this many problems. Maybe if you can get it for $10 like I did, it's worth a shot. But if you're paying $25, $30, $35 to import this one... I'd spend that money elsewhere. And that's Gadget Trick, designed by Kota Nakayama and published by Nononon Factory. The next game we have is Hitoni Yasashikunaru Game. Now, BGG has this one listed as people-friendly game, but we don't really agree with that translation. It's more like a game to make people friendly or becoming friendly towards people game. And you'll see why in a moment. This game, which I'm going to just call Hito from now on, is basically the game of headbands where someone puts a card on their forehead and faces it out towards other players, and the player with the card needs to guess what is on their card. But in this game, the words on the card are all ailments or diseases, like a stomach ache or heart disease. The other players will draw a theme card that tells them how they need to give a clue. Clues must be said kindly, as in with worry for the person. And the theme tells them who would be worrying about that person. So for example, the card on the person's head might be stomach ache. And the theme would be mother, so everyone would have to come up with something that a mother would tell their child when they have a stomach ache and roleplay it. They can't say what is on the card, so they couldn't say, oh, is your stomach bothering you? It'd be more like, hey, here, why don't you have some ginger? 
If the player guesses right, yay. And the person who is the most helpful or the kindest would get reward points. And that's basically how you play. We bought this game back when we used to buy anything Oink Games came out with blindly. And if you want to hear why we don't do that anymore, go check out our Oink Games episode, which I'll leave a link to in the episode description. I remember being surprised at the size of the box when we got it at the game market. This is not the typical Oink-sized box. It's the size of Biblios or Tiger and Dragon. That's because the cards are these nice tarot-sized cards, maybe a bit bigger, so that everyone can easily read the card on someone's head. And everyone is given a long list of all the possible cards it could be. And the box and the rulebook are pretty decent too. So hey, unlike Gadget Trick, a nice first impression. This is an example of a game that kind of feels like a game, but also doesn't at the same time. I'm not one that really likes going into the, is this a game or an activity debate. Although at some point, I'd love to do an episode exploring the differences. But this one and Telestrations really feel like the two most I don't care about the points games I've played. The reward points you get don't really matter. The hook of the game is the role-playing aspect of it. When the person guesses it, there's a real sense of triumph that they got it based on your caring words. But that sense of triumph, it starts to fade. Fast. For some, I don't think the fun was ever there. But for others, it starts as a fun activity and just becomes stale or just too difficult. There are some words on these cards that are like heart disease. How am I supposed to roleplay someone? Like, what are the symptoms? And does the person with the card know the symptoms of what heart disease would be? There are times in which this kind of thing happens, and when it does, it just completely derails the game. There are two really key questions. I mean, there are more than that, but generally speaking, there are two really key questions when it comes to party games. Does it work? And is it fun? So does this game work? Well, kinda. Like I said, there can be times when the role-playing can be fun for some people. There are also times in which you can feel embarrassed or lost in what you were supposed to say. When a card pops up that you don't know, it brings the game to a standstill. And if not everyone is into it, that also completely makes this game unplayable. To a degree, it can work in groups of outgoing people, or maybe theater kids, but there are just some cards that you might want to skip. So does this game work? It can, but it also very much cannot. Is it fun? Um, maybe for like 5-10 minutes, but then no, not really. It's a really weird thing where I think at this point you'll know if your group would get a kick out of this, but it really is going to be either good for 10 minutes of laughs or 10 minutes of anxiety. There are 45 cards, so there is a bit of variety, especially with the different approaches that you need to take to get them to guess the symptom. But I keep waiting for this game to knock it out of the park, because in concept it seems like it could be fun, but I just have yet to experience it. Even in the groups that are perfect for this game, it has kind of just gotten stale pretty quickly, especially compared to other games that ask you to be silly. I don't think we've ever lasted more than 15 minutes playing this game before everyone at the table is ready to move on to something else, and it usually lasts more like 10 minutes, which is about one turn for each player. In theory, a game in which you need to be caring to others and then they have to get your indirect meaning to guess their problem should be pretty good. It's a novel-ish take on some classic games, but all in all, just because it's novel doesn't make it fun. And it's not just me. I've seen this game more than any other Oink game on sale and in resale stores like Sudagaya. This game retails for $30, but I frequently see it on sale for $15. Again, like Gadget Trick, we can see where it can be fun. We can definitely understand that some people will enjoy this one, maybe medical students. But since we haven't come across a group that likes it, and we don't care for it either, we don't recommend this one. Oh, and it should be said that this is a rare Oink game that doesn't include any English, so you would have to do translations for all the cards and the hints. It's a middling Oink game that doesn't beat out any of the classic party games that you probably already own. And that's Hitoni Yasashikunaru Game, or people-friendly game, designed by Dean Krasi and published by Oink Games. Not a great start here. Two games we don't recommend. Let's see if it gets better with our next game, Roll Right Fugle. Now this game is a strange one. 
because you have a game of two halves. In the first half, someone will roll three dice and you will put those numbers somewhere on your sheet. Your sheet has these boxes that are divided up into colored sections and you have to put those three numbers that were just rolled in the same section. This board is laid out into different sized columns. Some have only one space, some have two or three or four, you get it. You'll all take turns rolling these dice until all of your boards are filled up. Once that's done, you'll add up the numbers from each column and each of those sums become a card you'll play in the second half of the game. The second half of the game is a very simple climber shedder in which you play those cards you just created. You can play as many cards as you want of the same number, but you can't do runs. So you could play one one or two ones or three ones, but you can't do one, two, three. First player to get rid of all of their cards wins. So all right, I 100% bought this game on the back of Taylor's trick-taking tables recommendation. Sumachan loves roll and rights, and we both enjoy trick-taking and climbing games, so we were all over this one. Right away, it has to be said that the quality of the box is not great. It will most likely dent and break from shipping, so just know that going into this. And the pencils you get are literally the pencils that they attach to surveys in Japan, which is pretty funny. You'll probably end up using your own. But that aside, let's delve into the gameplay. There's absolutely nothing inherently special about either half of these games. Is it a good roll and write? No. Is it a good climbing game? Not necessarily. But is it interesting putting them together? Yeah, actually it is. The way you build your hand is novel. You're planning on how you can use the dice rolls to your advantage. Do I use this six on its own as a high card? Or do I put it somewhere so that I can get a pair of 11s later? The start player is the person with the lowest card on the leftmost space. So is it worth having a one there, which is a weak card, but then I'll get to go first. For the first half, you get three adjustments in which you can raise or lower the card by a value of one. So maybe you didn't get what you wanted, but you can instead make that die something that will get you a triple or a pair somewhere. It's not revolutionary by any means, but it works. And everything about this game is so quickly understandable, probably because of this lack of newness. Well, okay, that makes it sound bad. The combination is new, but everything about those things are not. It's like we mentioned in our Pin Combi Trio review. For the most part, there are just a lot of simple mechanics that don't change the landscape of gaming, but that makes it easy to learn and easy to play. On your first play of this, you can be up and running, including setup and teach, in about two minutes. That's great. Now the question is, where does this fall in the landscape of climbing games? That's the tough part. It's hard to evaluate based solely on that question. Is this an interesting roll and write that has climbing? Or is this a climbing game that has roll and write? And does it even matter? Well, kinda actually. Sumachan came into this a fan of roll and writes, and I came into this a fan of climbing games. So we were looking forward to different aspects of this. And Sumachan said she was disappointed with the roll and write aspect. That part wasn't fun. It was the climbing part that was fun. What we agreed on was the fact that this game is for climbing game fans, not really for roll and write fans. Because ultimately the roll and write is the part that feels like the supplementary part of the game. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it because we do actually recommend this game. We think it works really well for beginners of climbing games, or maybe just as something a bit different. I could see this working well with families, no matter the experience level with this sort of game. It feels like a light filler climbing game that's perfect for a warm up or cool down. I don't think this game is something that's going to turn into a full night affair, but for what it is, a novel combination of climbing and roll and write, we were impressed. We think it sits in a spot on our shelf where we don't want to get rid of it because we will probably want to pull it off the shelf every once in a while, but it's not something I'm clamoring to play again and again. Now, I do have to point out that I'm not an expert in Daifugol, but Simachan played it growing up, and she said it really isn't like that at all. Sure, they are both climbing games, but the rules that make Daifugol, well, Daifugol, aren't here. So if you're trying to get someone to play by saying, hey, this game is like Daifugol, well, it's not. It's definitely just a marketing tactic that pulls off of something that Japanese people know as an example of a climbing game. 
But with that said, this game is a solid 7 out of 10. Pretty solid, and I was honestly surprised how well it worked. Is it something you need to go out and buy immediately? No. But I think that if you do get this one, you're going to have a good time with it. And it does play well at a variety of player counts. And that's Rollin' Raifugo, designed by Chika Suzu, and published by Ponkotsu Farm. Finally, we'll wrap up today with Gugong, which is not a game from the East, and instead is designed by Andreas Stedding of Hansa Teutonica fame. I want to read the theming of this game because it's great. China, 1570. China is under the reign of the Long King Emperor of the Ming Dynasty. He inherited a country in disarray after years of mismanagement and corruption. He resided in the Forbidden City, which was the seat of many emperors under the Ming Dynasty. Constructed from 1406 to 1420, the complex consists of 980 buildings and covers over 180 acres. It is also under the Ming Dynasty that the Great Wall of China was rebuilt, fortified, and expanded. Around this period, China was under heavy attack from the Mongols, so maintaining the Great Wall was essential. Most of what we now have left of the Great Wall we owe to the Ming Dynasty. The country was already famous for its very intricate bureaucracy, but this also led to a lot of corruption. Even though the penalties for corruption were very high, the highest officials of the Forbidden City would pretend to uphold the ban on corruption by accepting gifts of petitioners and returning one of seemingly lower value. So this game is essentially you bribing officials. You'll have cards in your hand that would be of a value, let's say five, and there will be different spots on the board representing different officials in charge of different things, like jade, royal decrees, or the port. In order to use those, you have to give them something of a higher value than what is already on their space. So if you have a 5 in your hand, and you want to go to the port, you need to exchange that 5 with the card that's at the port. If it's lower than a 5, cool, you can go there. But if it's higher than a 5, your bribe is not effective, and you either can't do the action, or you have to pay with workers, which is a very, very scarce resource in this game. You will take the card from that spot, and replace it with your 5, do the action there, and it's the next person's turn. This game has lots of things to do. Each section of the board is another way to get points, or help you in some way. Just a quick rundown, and I'm not going to call them all by their exact names. There's a horse area where you can travel along the road picking up bonuses that might be one-round bonuses or instant bonuses. You'll keep the tokens these bonuses are on, and you can buy stuff with them later. There's the jade section in which you get jade, and depending on how much jade you have at the end of the game, you'll get different amounts of points. There's the port in which you'll unlock game bonuses like getting an extra card in hand or getting a double worker. There's the decree area, in which you'll be able to buy end game bonuses, or bonuses at the beginning for, or end of day. There's the great wall, in which you'll send your workers there, and when it triggers, if you have the most, you'll get points, and to move up on the emperor track, which I'll explain in a moment. But if you have people on the great wall, you can also purchase something using the egg track. The egg track serves as the ultimate tiebreaker, but depending on how many spaces you've moved up on the track, you can buy things like jade or workers. Finally, you have the emperor track, which is the most boring, but also the most exciting track. The entire point is that you are trying to be a prominent family to gain the favor of the emperor. So by the end of the game, you have to make it to the end of that track so that you can meet the emperor. Depending on the order you get there, you get more points if you arrive earlier. But if you don't arrive at all, everything was a waste of time and you are eliminated from the game. Because I mean, if you don't meet the emperor, what was the point? Most points at the end. This game is very much unlike the others we have talked about, but oh man, is it so good. It sits in my personal top 10 games because I just love all the decisions you are constantly making. Where to go? When to get what bonuses? What cards does everyone else have? If I play this card here, will that block someone else from going there for the rest of the round? And if I don't go there, will I be blocked by someone else? And while there are different minigames you're playing, there is enough overlap between these bonuses and output that make them feel cohesive. 
like the Great Wall and the Egg Track purchase, or the Egg purchase with the Jade. I think the designer here, Andreas Stenning, really clamped down on the design, not letting it get out of hand. There is a lot going on here, but because of the limited amount of choices based on what cards other players have exchanged with the board, it is an easily digestible chunks that limits your choices, and therefore the AP. There is a chance of analysis paralysis for AP-prone groups, but I haven't experienced much of it yet. And for what seems like a bone-dry euro, the theme comes through surprisingly well. I have the deluxe version, and wow, is it a nice production that just adds to the austerity. I acquired the felt deluxe big box with the expansion, and it just feels luxurious. But the mechanics help this as well. The way this game plays, you really can't specialize in one thing, besides the Emperor wouldn't be that impressed anyway. You have to diversify, make good with as many of the specialists as possible. You need to send your people to the Great Wall, you need to help write decrees, you need to go to the port, and you should probably help with that, uh, egg track? Okay, hold on. About the egg track. It says it's intrigue and represents the hidden family influence. But like, why is it an egg? Is that the way that we're saying we got knocked up and have a nice bit of intrigue in our bellies? I'm very confused. What this game and its minigames behind this gorgeous artwork reveal is a really clever, elegant action selection system. Because when you exchange cards, you won't use those acquired cards until the next round, you can plan your next round. Well, at least you can try. There are times in which you'll be able to unleash a bribery frenzy on the board, being able to do anything you want, wherever you want, like a corruption machine. But there are also turns in which you're so screwed yourself over that you can't do anything. But either way, sure, it might have been affected a little bit by other players, but it's mostly due to your planning. For better or for worse, this game shows your skills in forward planning and how well you can balance opportunity costs. Now, I do think this game, for many, lacks that certain sense of pizzazz. It's a cool game, but it seems like nobody else that I introduce this to loves this nearly as much as I do. They'll say, yeah, that was cool. What's next? Like, what? Can we just appreciate this board state? Look at that. You got points. And then I look at the board and I go, oh... Hmm. Yeah, it looks the same as when it started, huh? And that's the thing about this game. This game is a dopamine spouter for people that enjoy the creep-up of points, the hand management, the idea that at the end of the day, you're just going to see how many points you got compared to everyone else. There's no real engine, no buildup of a cool family empire, and I think that can turn off some people. They work hard the whole game, and they have points. They just have points. Nothing cool to take a picture of on their player boards. For me, that's not a big deal at all. I just want to know if I won her. How well did I optimize and impress the Emperor during the course of the game? Did I ride enough decrees? Get enough jade? Travel with my horse enough? And what can I do better the next time I play? Did my strategy work this game, or was it not even close? And if you are like me and like that kind of game, I cannot recommend Gugong to you enough. The art is striking, the components and player board are lovely, and the mechanics are elegant and thinky, with lots to do without getting bloated. I have enjoyed this game at all player counts, although I think 5 might be a bit long for my taste, but that might have just been because that was a game in which 3 of the 5 players were new to the game. If it sounds like something you'd enjoy, I really think you will. And that's Gugong, designed by Andreas Stedding and published by Game Brewer. Well, that's the show. As I said earlier, we've got a review of Planet A to C coming out on YouTube this week, and you can find the link to our page in the show description. Coming up on the pod later this week, we'll be doing a mailbag episode answering your questions about board gaming in Japan. If you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. The algorithm loves it, and it helps people find our little show. Until next time, have a wonderful rest of your day. Arigatou gozaimashita. Channe! Channe!